This is a come up story with no scamming involved. There's a good amount of lies and overall delusions of Greenier, but hey, a lot of the advice we get in this world is to fake it till you make it. How did one of the most well-known fashion designers in the world get involved in an almost career-ending crime? Keep listening. Welcome to Most Fashionable Crime, a fashion-related true crime podcast hosted by me, Taryn. If you want to be on trend, make sure to sign up for the newsletter, subscribe to the YouTube channel, and follow the podcast on Twitter at Most Fashionable and Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at Most Fashionable Crime. There is also a discussion group on Facebook and a Reddit community, which are both linked in the notes. I want to give a special shout out to those that are always trending, which are the supporters of this podcast. I appreciate you guys so much. And there's a link in the notes if you would like to support too. Three ways to support my special crime are to share this podcast with anyone who may like it or may not know yet that they will like it. Leave it a five-star rating and or a review if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. Subscribe to the YouTube channel and just listen and engage on social media. Matter of fact, while you're listening right now, go ahead and share that you are to your Instagram story. On August 19th, 1883, Gabrielle Chanel was born in a place best known for its annual horse shows, Sommer, France. A young Gabrielle likely would not have grown up taking riding lessons or attending these horse shows because she was born into poverty to a 20-year-old mother and a 26-year-old father. She was born in the same charity hospital or poorhouse where her mother, Jeanne Novell, worked as a laundress. Her father, Albert Chanel, worked as a, quote, itinerant street vendor who peddled work clothes and undergarments. I read that Albert traveled a lot trying to make money while blowing it at the same time. And Jeanne and her family had to track him down after he left when he impregnated her with their first child, Julia, who she gave birth to in 1882. When she finally met up with him, she traveled around with him in two years and two daughters later, Albert and Jeanne married in late 1884. I read that Jeanne's family pretty much had to pay Albert to marry her. The couple went on to have four more children, another girl and three boys. One of the boys passed away as an infant. The Chanel family lived in a one-bedroom home in the town of Breve la Gaillard, which was actually called Breve at the time. When Gabrielle was 11 years old, her mother died as a result of bronchitis at 31 years old. Poor enough with two parents, their father, Albert, left the two sons, Lucien and Augustine, with a peasant family to work and live as farm laborers and took his daughters, Julia, Gabrielle, and Antoinette, to Abazine, France, where they lived in the orphanage ran by the Congregation of the Sacred Heart of Mary. Albert and Jeanne were barely in their children's lives, and they frequently passed off the children to family members to raise and take care of. To me, it's obvious that Albert did not wish to stay connected to his children, which is why he did not pass them off to family members. One of my sources claims that Albert died 10 days after Jeanne, but I haven't found any records that actually confirm this. While the seven and a half years or so Gabrielle spent in the orphanage were years of discipline, they seem to have helped her build her future. During her stay at the orphanage, she learned how to embroider, iron, and sew. At 18 years old, when she aged out of the orphanage slash covenant, she moved to Moulins and lived in a boarding house for Catholic girls, which was the Notre Dame Finishing School. She had only been able to stay at the covenant and she chose to join the order. At this new school in Moulins, she reconnected with her aunt Adrian, the youngest sibling of Gabrielle's father. Gabrielle's father, Albert, was the oldest and 28 years older than Adrian. Adrian was only a year older than Gabrielle, the same age as her sister, Julia. Gabrielle was on scholarship and I'm sure 
Adrienne was as well. She received further training in sewing, but since she was on scholarship, she had to serve and perform housekeeping duties for her classmates that were not on scholarship. Gabrielle seemed to have been guided into a career in fashion without even realizing it. Interestingly enough, I read that her maternal grandparents were couturiers or dressmakers. Once Gabrielle and Adrian graduated, the mother of Superior at the Notre Dame Finishing School found jobs for both of them as seamstresses and shop assistants at a draper's store. They were also able to share an attic room above the store. The store produced layouts for newborns, which are the first set of clothes worn by babies. The store also sold trousseau, which are clothes and household linens for new brides to collect for marriage, and mourning clothes, clothes that are usually black that signify the wearer is dealing with bereavement. The store pretty much sold for major life events. On the weekends, Gabrielle and Adrian worked in a tailoring shop, altering the riding pants for cavalry officers. The men they met started taking them out on dates to concerts in the park. There, Gabrielle must have decided to go after a dream of hers to sing on stage. She sang in cabarets that many of the cavalry officers attended, but she got a regular singing gig performing between sets of the stars or headliners of the concerts on stage at the pavilion in the park. Gabrielle only had two songs in her repertoire, one being the French version of Cockle Doodle Doo called Coco Rico, and the second song was about a girl who lost her dog called Kikavu Coco, which translates to Who Has Seen Coco. With these songs becoming her signature sorts, the regular attendees of her performances began to call her Coco, and that is how Gabrielle Chanel became Coco Chanel. <laughs> A 23-year-old Coco, high off the admiration she received during the performances, went to work in Vichy in 1906. Vichy is a small resort town that is home to many cafes, concert halls, and theaters. Here, Coco's hope was to become a successful performer. However, when it came to auditioning, she only impressed people with her youthfulness and looks, but not with her talent. Unable to find success as a performer, she worked as a glass dispenser for the Vichy mineral water that was thought to heal during Roman times. When the season ended in Vichy, she went back to Moulins and performed still, but she came to the realization that a performing career was not in her future. Her future would not be short of love interest. Back in Moulins, Coco met Etienne Balsan. Etienne Bassan was a former cavalry officer. He also had a nice coin, being that he was a socialite due to him being heir to a textile company and coming from a family of wealthy industrialists. Despite his family's wealth, Etienne and his brother Jaka did not hold any aristocratic title, nor were they landed gentry. Landed gentry is basically when wealthy men make all of their money from rental income from their country, estate, or estates. It's like being a landlord to the highest power in British or European society. It also sounds similar to sharecropping in the United States, but not quite. Either way, he still had enough money and status to renounce his military career to breed and race horses. Soon, Coco became Etienne's favorite mistress. She took the title away from a French dancer, actress, and courtesan, aka a mistress or cat woman by the name of Emmeline de Lacan. At this point, I believe Coco decided in a way to renounce her former life as a peasant girl and orphan. With Etienne, Coco became a material girl. She lived with him at Chateau de Rolleau, and her life began to elevate. And to me, it seems like she had a full circle moment. She was born in a town known for horse training and horse shows. And now she was living with a man that raced horses and on a property near the pre de Rolleau, and she was even riding horses herself. He introduced her to the lavish life where they spent their days with the horses. And in the evenings, they attended events and socialized. With her wearing the clothes, diamonds, and pearls, he showered her in. 
Some say her nickname Coco is derived from the term Coca, which is sometimes used to refer to someone as a kept woman. While she was kept up in the chateau, she started designing hats for herself and her friends because the ones on the market were too girly for her. Two years into their romance, she met Etienne's friend, Captain Arthur Edward Capel, also known as Boy. Boy was an English polo player and shipping merchant. This is where things start to get messy if they hadn't already because by 1909, Coco and Boy started their own affair. I read somewhere that this was a cordial pass-off of sorts, and in other sources, I read that it was pretty tumultuous. Either way, Coco, Etienne, and Boy all remained friends. Now that she was with Boy, Coco finally ended up in Paris. Boy set up an apartment for Coco in the city of love and fashion, and she settled for now onto this stepping stone. One year into her new romance with Boy, Coco's oldest sister, Julia, died and her son, Andre Palas, was left to her care. In 1910, Coco Chanel was not yet the Coco Chanel, so Boy arranged for her nephew to attend an English boarding school. You may be wondering why this episode is going into so much detail about her upbringing, early start, and romances, but you have to understand all of that to get to where she may or may not be considered a criminal. Boy was somewhat of a muse to Coco, and she drew a lot of her inspiration from him when it came to future pursuits and designs. It's hard to tell, but either Etienne and Boy financed these business endeavors together, or Boy financed them on his own. As Coco was entering high society and hobnobbing, she began to tell tales about her life and upbringing. For instance, in one lie, she was a decade younger than what she truly was, and in another, her father left for America to find fortune. Rats to riches stories weren't really a European thing, more so of an American thing that was popularized during the Gilded Age by Horatio Alger. You can also argue she lied about her age to remain popular among men and could get away with it because of her boyish figure and youthful appearance. In 1910, Coco Chanel became a licensed milliner or hat maker and opened a boutique she called Chanel Modes. Her millinery career skyrocketed once an actress and future friend of Coco's, Gabrielle Dorziat, wore them in a play in 1912 and posed while wearing her hats for a publication. Coco saw great success but still had not achieved financial freedom. The following year in 1913, she opened a boutique in Doval, a town that is regarded as the Queen of Norman Beaches and home to one of the most prestigious beach resorts in France. Doval is where Coco and Boy spent a lot of time together, so it made sense for this boutique to be a representation of her new life, but it still has some characteristics of her romance with Etienne Balsan. Again, Coco was dissatisfied with the offerings from the other shops in the area. It's interesting to me that she chose not to conform to the fashion and style of the high society she was now mingling with, but chose instead to take a more comfortable and simplistic approach to fashion. In the boutique, she introduced clothes that are similar to resort wear or athleisure of today, worn for sport or relaxing. She used breathable fabrics such as jersey knit and tricot, which was unheard of up until this time because the fabrics were primarily used for undergarments. She sold hats, jackets, and sweaters, but the true signature was the marinier, the sailor blouse. Boy Capel's personal style influenced Coco to add a masculine flair to her own designs. With the success of this boutique, another one soon followed as well as a new love entrance. In 1915, she opened a location in Biarritz, a seaside resort frequented by wealthy Spaniards and people who were exiled from their home countries due to the war. The next year, she was able to pay back Boy his original investment into her business. Her career really started taking off, and her place in the fashion world was secured by 1918. But her love life was crumbling as Boy Capel married the Honorable Diana Wynham. 
She stayed the course with her business, and now that she was finally free from boys, she purchased a building in one of the most fashionable Parisian fashion districts. In the next year, she was registered as a couturier with a Maison de Couture. 1919 was a devastating year for Coco, as Boy died in a car accident, allegedly on his way to see her. Despite his marriage, their relationship never ended, and Coco was left heartbroken. Two years later, Coco had her boutique, she launched the Chanel No. 5 perfume, and she had a new love interest, the Grand Duke Dmitry Pavlovich of Russia. At this point, Coco was a successful businesswoman, and instead of being the sugar baby, she became the sugar mama, which is probably why this romance only lasted a year, but they retained their friendship. You may have heard rumors of Coco Chanel being anti-Semitic. Well, by 1923, Coco Chanel, now age 40, had gained access to British aristocrats by way of Vera Bate Lombardi. She was now running in circles with the likes of Winston Churchill, who would later become the British Prime Minister, and Edward Prince of Wales, who would famously abdicate the throne to marry the American actress Wallace Simpson. Vera Bate Lombardi introduced Coco to Hugh Grosvenor, second Duke of Westminster, and they had an affair that lasted 10 years. The Duke bought Coco expensive art, jewelry, land on the French Riviera, and a home in London. The Duke was also a well-known anti-Semitic and homophobe. Allegedly, while in school, he made sexual advances toward his same-sex classmates. Personally, I hate that trope. The Duke also publicly outed his brother-in-law. This is not me saying Coco Chanel was impressionable at her big age. 40 isn't old, just old enough to make your own decisions and know better. Together, they formed a super anti-Semitic and homophobic power couple of sorts. In 1924, these beliefs grew even more intense over her Chanel No. 5 perfume. Chanel regretted the deal that she made with the Warheimer brothers who were Jewish and Theophile Bader, also Jewish, that left her with only 10% of the stock. Did this stop her from doing business deals with other Jewish men? No. I'm going to fast forward to 1939, the start of World War II. Coco decided to close her shops because to her, it was not a time for fashion, but she kept her apartment above her couture house. With her closing these shops, 4,000 women lost their jobs. Allegedly, this was in retaliation to her employees going on strike for higher wages and shorter work hours. I'm surprised she didn't keep working like Lucien Lalonde did, who I mentioned in last week's episode, but I guess her money was long enough to not work, plus she was often taken care of by other men. When France became occupied by Nazi Germany, she headed over to the Hotel Ritz to live. The Ritz was where the higher-up German military members chose to stay. While there, she had a romance with Baron Hans Gunther from Dinklage, who was a German lawyer and aristocrat, as well as a Nazi official. He worked as a secret agent and special representative in the Reich Ministry for Popular Enlightenment and Propaganda. He was working for Josef Goebbels, who I mentioned in the last episode. I read articles where people tried to brush off Coco's involvement with the Nazis. They would say she was looking out for her nephew or she just fell in love with a Nazi. And while some of that may be true, that was not the case to me. She had the money to leave for the United States like her rival Elsa Schiaparelli or just not get involved with them, period. Coco Chanel definitely doubled down on this because she tried to use her status as an Aryan in order to get the Warheimer brothers removed as owners of the perfume business. She wrote a petition to German officials, but before the brothers left for New York, they legally gave control of the business to a Christian French businessman, so the petition was unsuccessful. Coco Chanel also allegedly worked as a Nazi spy under the chief of the German intelligence agency and the military spy network, General Walter Schellenberg. She herself went on missions. The largest mission was called Operation Model Het. In 1943, Coco and her lover, Baron Hans Gunther von Dinklage, 
traveled to Berlin to the Reich Security Main Office. The plan was actually formulated by Coco, and the plan was to meet with her friend Winston Churchill and convince him to negotiate with the German Nazis. On the mission, Coco went to Madrid in 1943 along with her friend Vera Bate Lombardi to convince Sir Samuel Hoar, the British ambassador of Spain and friend of Winston Churchill, to convince him that Germany might possibly surrender when it appeared the Allies would win. Vera thought they were on a business trip looking into setting up a couture house in Madrid for Chanel. Vera delivered a letter written by Chanel to Churchill, which was to be forwarded to him at the British Embassy in Madrid. When I read this, I thought the plan was stupid, and it did fail due to Vera Bate Lombardi showing up to the embassy, calling Coco a Nazi spy, and denouncing their friendship. The next year, in September of 1944, Coco was subject to an interrogation by the Free French Purge Committee. The committee did not find any documented evidence of her involvement with the Nazis and therefore had to release her. The alleged story is that her friend Winston Churchill helped her out because if he didn't, the pro-Nazi ideologies of some of the British elite, top-level officials, and royal family would have been made known to the public. By 1945, she had moved to Switzerland and she lived some of those years with Hans Gufner Dinklage. Two years later, she and the Warheimer brothers renegotiated the 1924 perfume contract and came to a mutual agreement. She received an equivalent today of $9 million in wartime profits from the sale of the perfume and a new share of 2% of sales of the perfume worldwide, making a projected earning of $25 million per year, which made her one of the richest women in the world at this point. The weirdest thing from this renegotiation is that Pierre Wertheimer agreed to Coco's proposal of him paying for all of her living expenses for the rest of her life. I knew she grew accustomed to men taking care of her, but I don't understand her wanting someone she so-called hates paying for her. Very weird to me. In 1949, Coco left Switzerland to deny accusations made against her in the trial of a French traitor and high-ranking German intelligence agent by the name of Baron Louis de Valferlin. In 1954, she made her comeback into the fashion world, reviving her couture house at the expense of Pierre Wertheimer. The French press aired on the side of caution while the Brits and Americans saw it as a breakthrough. The Americans must have really loved it because in 1957, Coco traveled to Dallas, Texas to receive the Neiman Marcus Fashion Award from Stanley Marcus, one of the founders of the largest synagogues in the Southwest, and Neiman Marcus being the luxury retailer with three Jewish founders. Coco Chanel died in 1971 at the Hotel Ritz, where she lived for 30 years. The Hotel Ritz could also be considered the state of the downfall of her career. She was set to receive a Heroes Tribute organized by the First Lady of France, but that was scrapped once documents released that proved her involvement with the Nazis during World War II. When Coco Chanel was born, her father wasn't there and her mother was too tired to do the newborn procedures and documents, so Coco's name was incorrectly entered into the registry as Gabrielle Chasnel. In order to correct this, she would have had to acknowledge her poor upbringing, so she went to her grave as Gabrielle Chasnel. Thank you so much for listening to Most Fashionable Crime. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Head over to the YouTube channel for further discussion and don't forget to subscribe to the newsletter so you don't miss anything. Please be sure to subscribe to the podcast, download episodes, and leave a five-star rating if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. All of my sources are linked in the notes. In case you're wondering, this podcast was written, recorded, produced, and edited by me, Taryn. All the music you heard in this episode is from Evidence Sound. 